Welcome to Insight Studios. Our topics today are the ministry of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. Your presenter today is Pastor Kimberly Orr. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm sure others will filter in. It's kind of a special day, but we're going to go ahead and and persevere onward. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 3 today. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Would anyone feel led to open us in prayer this morning? Holy Father, we just thank you for this day. Thank you for all the blessings that you bestow upon us. Father God, we know that you are the true and living God, the God who existed before time began. Father God, we know that you all trust and fill. Amen. Amen. So again, we are in Matthew chapter 3, but before we begin, um, I'd just like to hear from you. Is there um, anything in particular that the Lord has been saying to you over these last few weeks that you feel uh, inclined to share? Something, how the Lord's blessed you, maybe? Yes. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the portrait of marriage of Joseph uh, and Mary. Um One of the things that you said was that what happened between them did not happen in a vacuum. They had to choose God every day. And that is something that I have been meditating on a lot. We have the option to choose God every day despite what the obstacles may be. We still have to choose Him so that He can get glory in our situation. Amen. Very good. Excellent. Well, let's continue on then with Matthew 3. Uh, we are now at what I'd call the getting toward the nitty-gritty here in the book. Um, chapter 3 is short. He's no longer a baby. <laughs> um, he is a grown man, uh, as is his cousin, uh, John. So uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll read chapter 3. It's, again, a mere 17 verses. Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Amen. So thus beginneth uh, the real meat of what's going on here. So again, just to review, Matthew is setting up Jesus as, first of all, who? Well, as the Mashiach, and he is in the line of, the royal line of David, and he is also the descendant of Abraham, right? Uh, so uh, we've already gone through the, the issue of um, him fleeing, his family fleeing, um, and them being uh, them uh, hiding out in among the Jews in Egypt, and after Herod the Great's Herod the Great dies and his son comes into power, then they flee back up to Nazareth. And if you remember from your map uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Nazareth is around sort of central northern Israel, and it's not far from the Sea of Galilee, right? And so now we have Jesus' cousin, John. Remember, he's Elizabeth's uh, and Zechariah's child. And in the womb, John, in the Gospel of Luke, it says the baby leapt within Elizabeth when uh, Mary's voice was heard, right? So we know from the beginning that John has a special call as well. And his call is to be what has become known as the forerunner of the Mashiach, of the Messiah of Jesus. And we find that first reference. So if you'll look up Isaiah 40, verse 3, Isaiah 40 verse 3 we're going to get a glimpse into the first testament as to what is going on here okay. so if you'll read that for me please isaiah 40 verse 3 a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god okay very good so that's isaiah's uh, and that, that is what Matthew is quoting here out of the book of Isaiah. And then also we have this bit about what John is wearing. There's a descriptor that identifies him with a particular prophet from the First Testament. So if you look up 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. It gives us a visual descriptor of a particular prophet. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, 
It is Elijah the Tishbite. All right, so who is John similar to then? Elijah. Elijah, right. And so there's the prophecy of Elijah being this forerunner of the Mashiach, the one who comes and says, prepare ye the way of the Lord out of the book of Isaiah. That's what we hear of the book of Isaiah, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The book of Mark will take this quote out of Isaiah, also make the reference to Elijah, and also uh, a reference to the book of Malachi, and uh, mash it all together. This was not uncommon. There's a lot of mashup going on. If you haven't figured that out yet in Matthew, there's a lot of biblical mashup. Why is that, do you think? Why do you think they were so, so kind of so kind of loose with the scripture? Yeah, they were so familiar with it, and they were so saturated in the Word of God, because you just kind of grew up with it, that they would just toss it out as a part of normal conversation, and in teaching, it was just a normal shift to kind of go back and forth. And so, like in the book of Hebrews, you have the writer of the he- of Hebrews say, somewhere it says, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, they didn't, you know, it wasn't important to know chapter and verse. It was important to know that um, this was in the prophets or this was in the Torah or this was in the writings. And this is somehow a fulfillment in this case of these passages. So that's why I say when you memorize scripture, great that you learn chapter and verse. That's wonderful. But it's more important that you get the guts of it. What is it saying? And in context, so that when um, things come up in your life, or you need to give some holy advice to somebody, it's from the scripture, and it comes out of that permeation of scripture that's in your life. You just kinda, like a, like a tea bag, soaked yourself in the word. The longer you stay in the water, the longer you stay in the word, the more it permeates your life and infuses your life. Uh, and and that's, that's our goal in, in the long term, amen? Okay, so we've looked at Isaiah 43. We've looked at uh, 2 Kings 1.8. So that's the immediate context. It's very interesting because right off the bat, uh, Matthew makes John the Baptist sound like an Old Testament prophet. In those days, sounds a whole lot like the book of Isaiah or any of the old, other Old Testament prophets. Many scholars will say that John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, even though he's in the New Testament, uh, because of the way he acts and looks and speaks. He is the last, quote-unquote, Old Testament prophet. Um, and it's fitting, because he's the one who prepares the way for the Mashiach, who takes us into a new age, a new era. Now, it's interesting, further to the context, people in this time in the land called Israel believed that the Holy Spirit had pretty much dried up. The Spirit had been silent for about 400 years. Malachi was viewed by, and the canon was closed, the Old Testament canon was closed. Nobody had had a word from the Lord since then. And so... The people believed that if the Messiah was coming, that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so John is preaching this truth. He's saying the Spirit, this person who's coming, is 
going to baptize with spirit and with fire, right? If you look at, if you look at, actually, if you read further in Isaiah 40, like verse 4, it says, and the presence of God will come, okay? There'll be this issuance of the presence of God. And this presence of God had been interpreted as an outpouring of the spirit and of a physical presence or manifestation of God himself in some way. Now, traditionally, this had been a king or a prophet or, uh, you know, some, some other a, a prominent person, a king, a prophet, something like that. But what we find out is that John is now pointing to Jesus and saying he's the one. He's the one who fulfills all of this that you've been looking for. As a matter of fact, as a sign of that, you're going to see the Spirit come down. And that would have been a big deal, right? So that's exactly what we see here. Why do you think it was important that John came acting like Elijah? Given all that I've just said about prophecy being dead and Holy Spirit kind of being dried up for a period of time. Oh, absolutely. He's tagging on to what Elijah was saying. But think about it. Put yourself in the position of sort of an everyday, very faithful Jew in Judea. You've been waiting. You're living under great oppression. You have been waiting for a Messiah for a long time. (laughs) And there's not been anybody who's had a word from the Lord in a long time, generations. And if someone shows up, looking like and acting like Elijah, what is going to be your hope? That there's somebody who's bringing some hope and some that's going to point the way to the Mashiach. Is it really time? Is it time? You know, and you're kind of in between. Do I believe him or is he just a crazy man in the desert? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's this push and pull. And what really seals the deal is what John does next. Not only does he dress like Elijah... And sound like Elijah, he starts preaching like Elijah. What does he preach? Prepare the way of the Lord and do what? Repent. Do teshuva. Turn from your wickedness. Now, this was common, especially for people who were not uh, religiously active. Let's just say that. Um, you know, come in and, and get yourself together, or people who are outside of the covenant, people who are not genetic Jews, to call for people outside of the covenant of Israel to come into and become a part of the covenant of Israel. But to call everyone, including the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to repentance, that was viewed as highly offensive, which is why we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up. It was common for the Old Testament prophets to be a part of the fringes of society. They would not have been a part of the religious elite. We see that over and over. Again, this theme of the people who should have known didn't know. The people who should have seen didn't see. That the poor and the impoverished and the undereducated know more than the ones who supposedly are educated. So John, although he grows up in an elite family, let's be clear, he grows up in an elite family, puts all that away 
Because his father is one of the high priests. He's in the rotation of priests, right? So he's got money. <laughs> but he throws that all away to go live in the desert. To go live like a hermit or a Nazarite. For the sake of demonstrating the coming of the kingdom of God. It's more important to him that the people understand that God is still active and working than it is for him to live in his comfort. And Jesus picks up on these themes too. Because what's the first sentence in the Beatitudes? Chapter 5. By the way, everything to this point is leading up to Matthew chapter 5. Are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So, Because theirs is the kingdom of God. And we're going about, about to have a statement about the kingdom of God here, right? John identifies with the poorest in his land. Jesus also chooses to do the same. He, yes? So at what age does John... Uh, John grew up in a wealthy family, mm -hmm. right? a wealthy Jewish family. At yes. what age does he cross over and start making the sacrifices and goes to right. live as, as with the poor. Yeah, it, probably around 30. It was common in that time to say that you really, uh, Jewish tradition would say that around the age of 30, then you were prepared maturity-wise to enter into your own ministry. So he wasn't like Jesus where he preached uh, from the early age. Mm -mm. Right, so, um, and we're going to talk about Jesus' early life, too, um, why, why there's not a lot. John, you know, grows up again somewhere in Judea, because, again, his family is, Zechariah is one of the priestly group. He should have been a priest, but he's not. He follows the call of God to go into the desert, again, like these old prophets, like Elijah most specifically, to identify with the poor, to remove himself from what he views to be a corrupt system that he's not going to participate in and to prepare the way for the Messiah, which gives people hope. Yes? How much time was it? Let's state this mm -hmm. between the time of Malachi and the time of John. What was the span? It's over 400 years. I could find an exact number for you, but it's over 400 years. Yeah, a long time. Ironically, almost the same amount of time as the, as the people of Israel were enslaved about the same amount of time. They're comparable. It's very interesting. Which is why the water business is so important. So what does John come doing? He comes preaching baptism. He comes, he comes uh, preaching, excuse me, repentance, teshuva, turning from a lifestyle of wickedness or of excess and so forth. And he asks people to, as a sign of their repentance, to do what? Be baptized. Now, let's just, I, I want to correct all of our mental images about what this looked like. It is not a Baptist preacher in the water taking people and going, whoosh, and pulling them back up. That is not the image. Right? So let, let me correct this. This is called mikvah. M-I-K-V-A-H. M-I-K-V-A-H. Look, I always had in my head what was in my children's Bible, you know, uh, of somebody dunking somebody. Or pouring water on somebody. Yeah, that ain't it. So mikvah, and they still have mikvah today in, in, in Jewish society. We have three here in Houston, as a matter of fact. One of the requirements of mikvah is that it must be fed by 
natural water. Rainwater, river water, lake water, ocean water, it has to have natural water in it. So things like rivers and oceans and lakes were natural mikvahs. Now they also had artificial ones like we have here in Houston that they dug down, but they had a feed into it that was at least, I don't remember the percentage, but there's an actual rabbinical percentage of how much natural water has to be in it. And the idea was, here we go, you had to strip naked. So again, there would have been a women's day and a men's day. There would have been a, a women's part of the bank and a men's part of the bank. Okay, not together. <laughs> and as they were being called to repentance, uh, there would have been a specific time, I'm sure they arranged, where once they came to repentance, then they would go through mikvah. And they would get together, and there were all these prayers that were being said and so forth. And he's out in the middle of the water. John the Baptist, you can imagine him kind of out waist deep preaching as they're coming into the water. And buck naked, they go down into the water, crouch down, because it's not that deep, all right? <laughs> crouch down, cover themselves in water, walk back out, and get dressed. Okay? The symbolism is as follows. Two, well, three things. One, birth. Birth and new life. Everybody passes through water when they are born, which is why Jesus uses the metaphor in John 3. Right? <clears throat> Two, the exodus. What do they pass through? Water. Water. And coming into the promised land, what do they pass through? Water, the Jordan. So you've got those three metaphors going on simultaneously. You could even add a fourth, which we'll get to with Jesus, which is Noah and the flood. All water symbolism. And so mikvah was the big symbol for outward symbol of an internal transformation. Okay, I am making my mind, I'm choosing, I'm making my mind up, I am choosing now to turn away from my life of sin and excess, and I am now choosing to follow the ways of God. So that was the symbol, because I leave my old self on this bank, and I come out a new self on the other side. So that's, they would kind of go in, cover themselves up completely in the water, and walk back out. And obviously you have people and assistants and all that stuff helping you out at a very practical level, right? I'm sorry, what was the second and third? Um, <coughs> it was birth, new life. So, okay, so, okay, so birth, which we all pass through water to be born. Two uh, was the exodus, so going through the Red Sea. Uh, three would be going crossing the Jordan to go to the Promised Land. And then four would be Noah, Noah and the flood, surviving the flood, if you will. And we'll get to that very specifically when we get to Jesus. But all throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, especially the uh, purification laws in the book of Leviticus, you see the uh, necessity, the command to mikvah for a variety of reasons. For women, it was usually uh, at, at various times you had like after your time of the month, after birth, and also in preparation for any high holy day. Men, there were some also personal hygiene reasons to do this, as well as preparation for high holy days, or if you had come in contact with a dead body, anything like that. To, to, it, was, it was a symbol of, of regaining your ritualistic purity so you could participate in the life of the community. That's why they would have the, the 
community go out by themselves. Right. Right. And if you like say if you were cured of leprosy, like we see examples of that, one of the things that those people would have had to have done after they presented themselves to the priest would be go to mikvah. They would go through symbolic cleansing on the other side. It's also why you see water used in various places throughout the New Testament. It has this symbolic uh, concept with it of, of purity and renewal and of a second exodus. Much of what you see here is this sort of second exodus thing going on. Yes. So, <clears throat> it, was there more than one, I mean, more than one time that you could do Oh, yes, over and over, yeah. if you wanted to, okay. yeah. And as a matter of fact, the only sort of one-time mikvah or baptism would have been to convert from being non-Jewish to Jewish. That would have been the only time that there would have been sort of a one-time public demonstration of moving from being a pagan to following the ways of God okay and that would have been done in front of religious officials and so forth but thereafter this was this was done repeatedly you could mikvah anytime right there wasn't anything particular holy or sacred about it other than a symbol of your uh, movement through this and God's action on you as you were going through this process because you were outwardly showing your desire and so God was meeting you in that spiritually to act to act upon you in grace so we would find in the New Testament this is talked about John Wesley will translate this to mean or interpret this to mean as a means of grace God's grace acting upon you so baptism is more than what you call it right now Baptism is, was in the Old Testament, the First Testament, much more than it is than what we call it today. Now, baptism gets transmutated into something else in the New Testament by the time we get past Jesus, after the resurrection and ascension, and that's not what we're talking about. Okay, The doctrine of, of baptism is different, related, but different to what we're talking about with mikvah, what was going on at the Jordan River where John was preaching. He was calling... Everybody who could hear him <laughs> and more because clearly the word spread because there were lots of people coming out. Remember, they had not heard from the Spirit in a while, so they were like, oh my goodness, there's somebody who's hearing from the Lord, who's hearing from the Spirit. Let's go hear him. Let's go see. Maybe it's time for the Messiah. Maybe it's time for our oppression to end. There was a lot of hubbub and excitement. Yes. About 400. Uh huh. A long time. Again, similar amount of time to the Egyptian slavery, give or take. So, uh, long time. So you can see why there might have been a lot of excitement around John, right? Um, but we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to check him out. Again, they would have been highly offended by this preaching because John is also calling them to repentance. And they don't feel like they need to repent of nothing. Now, we do have examples of Pharisees uh, who do feel convicted of their life and their lifestyle, and they do go through mikvah in a very honest way. But they're the exception. The majority of them are coming out to say, who is this person? He is outside of our authority. He's not been, he's, he, look, he's already rejected his position as a priest. So what does he think he's doing out there? Right? So, um, 
John, the, the excuse me, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to check him out. And what does John call them? Brood of vipers. Now let me explain this little metaphor here that he's using. In the ancient world, we have documents that, that would indicate that people believed that there were types of snakes where, because a viper is a snake, a poisonous one. A viper is a poisonous snake. And the uh, imagery here is of a type of snake where the eggs inside the mother snake hatch, hatch inside of her and eat their way out and kill the mother. All right? So, so the mother died <laughs> when this, the children, the brood, the children hatched inside of her, which was normal, and then ate their way out. Okay, this is, there was a species of snake that fit this category. Huh? Yeah, well, they don't know they're orphan. They don't, they don't know. They can care less. Okay, but now think about the metaphor here. Think about the metaphor. So John is accusing them of killing their mother. <laughs> it's not just, you're just a bunch of poisonous snakes. That would have been bad enough. But he's essentially accusing them of killing their mother. <laughs> this is yo mama statement. All right? There is nothing more offensive. I mean, he's really trying to press their buttons. Uh, yeah, that's the metaphor. That was a common kind of wisdom statement that you're really bad because, you know, you're just really very evil. If someone calls you a brood of vipers, a group of people, you're real bad. Okay? Not only are you a snake, but you can kill your mama and not blink. Okay? No. No, this is this is this is a common wisdom statement of the time. Okay? Okay, so so like we have certain statements we'll call different groups of people this that and the other, y'all are this, y'all are that. So this is one of those little common statements of the day that people when you said it would understand. If you called that group of people that, you meant they were real bad. To the point where they would even consider killing their mother. So John is not pulling any punches. Why do you think John is this way? Think about his background now. <laughs> yes. He knew him from the inside, didn't he? He's a preacher's kid. He knows what's going on behind the background in the church. So... He probably had good reason to call them what he called them. Yes. <laughs> For the most part, the religious elite uh, skimmed the flock, shall we say, made a lot of money. So his family was a part of doing that. So now, it seems that Zechariah was not, he obviously, because of his experience through John's birth, had some kind of, of, of come to Jesus, if you want to say. But he had, he had a repenting moment there where he's, he seems to not be that way any longer. And we do have instances of people from the Pharisees who do come to repentance 
we can think later, like in the book of John, you know, Nicodemus and people like that who do come to Jesus and do understand uh, their life is more than the sum of their money and their power and position. <clears throat> but by and large, they're stuck in this. And, the, the, and indeed, the parable of Jesus when, when of the widow's might is not about tithing at all. It's a shaming story to shame the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Here they are in their big fine silk robes that cost a lot of money, giving all their money and showing out how much money they're giving. When this poor widow, who's supposed to be being taken care of by the temple, the, a Jewish woman, she's widowed, was supposed to be given welfare. Basic from the temple, basic living, she was supposed to be taken care of in food and in clothing and in shelter and have enough to give. And because they weren't doing that, Jesus is pointing out that she only has two pennies. She should have a whole lot more than that. This is a shaming story, not uh, how wonderful this widow only gave all she had. <laughs> that's not the point. It's the fact that that's all she had. Um, so there was not a lot of, lot of love lost between the Pharisaical elite and the Sadduceic elite and the prophets of the day. Jesus, John the Baptist in this case, right? So John the Baptist is calling them out and he's calling them to repentance. Now clearly they've heard in town, in Jerusalem, about this weird guy, this hermit guy standing out beside the Jordan River preaching all this. So they come to check him out. And he turns around and says to them, well, who told you <laughs> about the day of judgment? You know, in other words, y'all just should have stayed home and received the judgment. Um, ooh. <laughs> but at the end of the day, he is preaching to them too. And there are some that do come and repent, but a very small number. Um, and it, they are the antagonists for the entirety of the ministry of Jesus all throughout the Gospels, right? John in verse 11, then he comes out and he says, I baptize you with, for, with water for repentance, but he who is coming to me is mightier than I and whose sandals I am not worthy to carry or untie, whatever your version says. This is an interesting thing because often the prophets in the Old Testament, the First Testament, were viewed as servants. They would call themselves the servants of God or the servants of the Most High or the servants of the Lord. But in this context, John is saying, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to be a servant. This one is so great, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to be a servant, uh, which is kind of extraordinary. <laughs> you think about it. Um, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And again, they're looking for the Holy Spirit because it's been dried up for a while. And with fire, which is judgment. On one hand, he's looking at the, 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 the sincere, repentant crowd. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then glares over at the Pharisees and with fire. <laughs> you know, it's all about uh, what God is going to do to clean up to bring about restoration of the people called Israel, Judea in this case, the southern kingdom, uh, to where it should be. Notice he's not speaking of anything militarily or governmentally. Let me say that one more time. Notice John is saying zero 
nothing about the military or about the government. What is he emphasizing? Spiritual revolution. Spiritual revolution. Bringing people from death to life. Repentance. Turning from a life occupied with stuff, with, with uh, what I don't have or what I do have. Um, stop stealing from each other. Do justice. Those kinds of things that we see all throughout the First Testament. In Micah 6, 8, what does is, what is the prophet Micah say? Oh man, what do I require of you but that you love justice, goodness, mercy, right? And do mercy. You walk humbly with your God. So these are the things that John is calling people to. Not some sort of religious experience, <laughs> per se. Um, you're not checking any boxes. This is a wholesale life change and exchange. Again, a second exodus, if you will. So that's the thing. So why does John use this eschatological language? Now, eschatology means a study of the things of the end. The study of the things of the end. Um, why does John use eschatological language? It's a question on your sheet. This end, knows. this kind of stuff of the end, he judgment knows. and all that. Well, he knows this, that the Holy One is coming and he has to give his life. And, he, and that's what it's talking about, death. Mm -hmm. And judgment. Mm -hmm. Judgment. Mm -hmm. um, that Jesus is coming, yes, to bring life, but he's also coming to bring judgment to those who are unwilling to see him for who he is, frankly. And, and to, to be unwilling to turn from their wicked ways and follow after the person that God is designating, the Messiah. And so all this leads up now to this crescendo in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee, north. He walks all the way down to Judea, because we know from the beginning that John is baptizing somewhere on the Jordan River around the Jerusalem area, okay? So this is east of Jerusalem, down toward the Dead Sea. Uh, but the Jordan River is there. It's muddy. It's not that deep. I've been in it. And it's cold. <laughs> he would have probably had to have been baptizing sometimes in the spring because there wouldn't have been enough water to baptize any later than that. In verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee down to the Jordan to John. To be baptized, mikvahed by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be mikvahed by you and not you to me. Why do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he needs to demonstrate to the people that are there that this is a fulfillment not only of the scripture, but of the act of righteousness. Jesus does what we are asked to do. Jesus doesn't do anything that he asked us to do that he hadn't already done. He teaches by example as well as by word. Yes, ma'am. Uh, uh, uh -huh. Oh, the winnowing fork. Yeah. Okay, yeah. All right. So um, 
I actually grew up in, you know, in East Texas, so I actually saw this a couple of times. Um, if you plant a field with wheat or with barley or any kind of grain or rice even, and it comes time to harvest, the old manual way of doing this is, okay, you harvest, you cut the stalk, and you chop it all up. And then you take a big fork, big, like a, uh, like a bamboo-type fork, and you pick all that up and you throw it up in the air. And all of the husk around the seeds and the chaff, the, the stuff that's called the chaff, and the stalks that are lighter than the seed will blow away, and the seed will fall to the ground and be collected. The insects and all that stuff. And all that stuff. It throws out all the bugs and all of the you know, stalks, and the little, again, the little covering that's around the seeds will be knocked off in this process too. And then the, the, all those seeds that fall down will then be gathered up and stored. So that's, what, that's, that's the imagery. So it's an imagery of judgment. It's, this, it's what Jesus will, will eventually, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The wheat and the weeds grow up together. But in the winnowing process, once it's all cut down, then the weeds will be pulled out, winnowed out. Okay, uh, uh, but, but God allows them to grow up together at the same time. You can't, because it's too difficult, pull them out while they're growing. You pull up the feet. Say it together. And then at the point of judgment, then we'll pick them out. And John is saying, now is that time. This is that day of judgment. Because the Messiah is here. You better get yourself together. You better follow him and what he's saying because he is the representative of God. And so he's calling everybody to pay attention, to listen, and to see and to follow who's coming. And the way that they're going to demonstrate now in verse 13 and following is that Jesus is going to go through publicly this mikvah experience. But what happens to him when he gets down in the water and comes out is what's important. Because up until that point, everybody just saw him as a normal human. Right? He's just, he's John's cousin. All right? <laughs> he's a tecton. He's a building foreman up there in North Israel. Yeah. He and his daddy, he and his daddy were up there working. Okay? Now, clearly... We know from his bar mitzvah experience that he had some incredible, already ex supernatural knowledge and understanding of the word, clearly, all right? We do know that he and his daddy worked in the area. So it's interesting to think about um, that Jesus could have helped lay the foundation for the Colosseum that's in the Roman town over the hill from his village, or that he built the, you know, the door frame for a house in the in Nain, which is south of his village. <laughs> That's what he was about doing. Because it says he just grew in wisdom and knowledge and that, you know, people uh, recognized this about him. And absolutely, he would have participated in all the normal Jewish functions of the day. He would have clearly had some a superior understanding of this. But we don't see him doing anything in ministry until this moment. Right. John, you know, and it's clear that um, John, Jesus comes down to initiate this. This is Jesus' initiative. He meets up with John. He knows what John is doing. Uh, they know each other from childhood. They would have known, seen each other off and on. 
Because again, uh, apparently Jesus is north. Uh, John is somewhere around the Jerusalem area. His family's from around there. So uh, they would have known each other like family reunions kind of thing. <laughs> and so we see, you know, in, in other gospels, like Mark, behold the Lamb of God, right? Or behold, you know, this is the one coming toward you. Um, and, and he recognizes there's something special about him, but not until this moment do we realize, do the authors reveal in the Gospels that this is the Messiah. So again, he comes up out of the water, verse 16, or sorry, yeah, verse 16, and behold, look, the heavens open, and this is a big deal, like in the book of Ezekiel, the heavens open. We know something's about to happen, something really spectacular and unheard of and unseen in many, many generations. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending in the form of a dove. Now, where's the last place you remember seeing a dove? Noah and the ark, which is a symbol of recreation. This pulls together the story of Noah into the story of Jesus. Noah is not a Jew. Jews don't start until Abraham, and indeed, not really until Mount Sinai, okay? So, he's bringing together the symbology of the story of Noah. Because, look, God could have chosen any symbol to represent his spirit. He could have chosen a lion or uh, uh, an eagle or uh, whatever. Because there's plenty of symbols in the Old Testament, right? Yes. But he chooses a dove. Which pulls us back to the Noah story and to God's act of recreation. So God's about to recreate the world as we know it. Because this is kind of kind of big, right? So, and the Spirit of God has come. So this is initiating this new way of, of looking at the world, this new creation, this new exodus, this new way of looking at life through Jesus' eyes like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, wow, not only do we have John's voice saying that this is somebody who's the Messiah and special, but now we have a voice from heaven, the very voice of God, which we ain't heard in a long time, <laughs> saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And God is quoting, quote unquote, he is quoting Psalm 2. Psalm 2 gives us the indication of uh, God sanctioning, Psalm 2-7, sanctioning David as a quote-unquote son. In other words, someone who's in, who's in keeping with how God wanted to operate. You know, he says, a man after my own heart. This is, again, linking Jesus with the Davidic line. Yes? Oh, Pastor Kim, so, no, you said that was a re recreation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, I guess I really don't. No, okay. Yeah. What is this, you know, so, what's the, is there going to be another recreation? Mm -hmm. Okay, is that, are we going to be the, and the creation of the tour, or what, I mean, you know. So let me answer that with how John um, answers it. Okay. It says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
the kingdom of heaven, they were looking for a new reign of the kingdom of God, right? Because everybody knew that God was the king of heaven and at one level God reigned and ruled in the universe. That was undisputed. With this inauguration of Jesus and with this great call to repentance and with this outpouring of the Spirit upon Jesus, we have now a demonstration that the kingdom of God is here now. Is here now. Jesus brings the kingdom of God, ushers in the kingdom of God. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he ushers in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom is both here now and there is more to come. It's this what scholars will call the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here. We're not waiting on it. It's here already. But there's more to come. There's more to come at at the second return of Christ, and there will be an absolute reign. But now, we are in the kingdom now. And that's the only reason the church is still here. We are empowered by the Spirit, theoretically, powered to continue to bring the kingdom until He comes. So wherever we are, our job is to bring the kingdom of God in our space. Wherever God's put us, that's our territory to bring into the kingdom. In our house, in our job, in our families, that's our job to bring the kingdom in that area. And so uh, because th that's what Jesus came to do. And everywhere he walked, everything he did was about bringing the kingdom. So that's why we say here, whatever Jesus said, say it. Whatever Jesus did, do it. Because that's bringing the kingdom. Love your neighbor. Love yourself. Learn to love God with everything you are. And you will bring the kingdom wherever you are. And it is. The only solution to our world crisis is the love of Jesus. Amen. Period. Full stop. It's the only solution. No matter how we personally feel, quite frankly, it's irrelevant. At the end of the day... We have to subjugate our stuff to God's kingdom if we say we follow him. Yes, we can be angry. Yes, we can be upset. Yes, we can be happy. Yes, we can be whatever or how we feel. But that has to be put in perspective of what our mission is. John, and John look at John. It's clear he's really angry at these Pharisees. But he also knows that God can change them if they'll repent. He subjugates his own stuff <laughs> to the will of God, <laughs> to the call of God. And that's hard for all of us. That's hard for all of us. But that, that seems to be what's being, that's one of the things that's being said here among many things. The kingdom of God is here and the job of the church, because remember this is being written to churches, the job of the church is to continue to bring the, the kingdom of God by following Jesus, by doing what Jesus did. And that starts with repentance. That starts with teshuva, turning from a life that is guided by our thoughts and pleasures to a life that is guided by God's thoughts and pleasures. And he loves humanity. He made every human in his image. Therefore, we have to have his help 
aka the Holy Spirit, to love others as God loves them. Because most people will never know the love of Christ except what we show them. And what's the caricature of Christians in media? The comic book drawing of Christians. Big cross around your neck, holding your Bible all the time. The Christianese talk. There you go. <laughs> it's not terribly positive, is it? It's our job to not be that. We've become Pharisees. We, we all have at some level. And, and so then it becomes important for us to hear again the call of John. Prepare you the way of the Lord. If you want to see the Lord reign in your situation, in your life, in your job, in your family, then be Jesus. Could this have been yeah. why he immediately started with the sermon? Yeah. Well, we're going to find out next week. He goes, he goes out in the desert first. But yes, then right after that, he calls his disciples, and then he immediately goes to the Sermon on the Mount. Which is, again, what John's leading up to. He's shoving us that direction. So we've got about five minutes. So questions or comments? I've noticed that throughout the history of the Israelites, mm -hmm. starting with, I guess, Joseph, every time the nation was sinned, God would put them in the It was like a repeated thing. And when they left Egypt, it was 400 years. And then when you said there was a 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew, well, just probably just before that, God was admonishing them for worshiping up gods and things like that. Just totally turning right. their back on them and mm -hmm. called wars and stuff like that because that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. in and there was a 400 They had the captivity in Babylon, and then the northern ten tribes are wiped out. Right. And then Babylon. And it actually started with Solomon. When the tribes split. Right. With Jeroboam and, and Rehoboam. Yeah. And it just was a long period of slavery. Well, so that as we look at ourselves and we say, yeah, you know, I'm pretty stubborn too. <laughs> I don't like giving up my stuff. Um, if God can redeem the people called Israel, he can redeem us. He can recreate us. Yes. I think this is my first time really putting into perspective the personality of John. I didn't realize that he was so feisty to an extent. I mean, he was really, you know, I didn't <coughs> now because I think I would every time I would about John or hear a message about him, it always baffled me. Why would, you know, this man, he has he had such an awesome ministry to prepare the way for Jesus, but then he died such a brutal death. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so now it's kind of, I'm starting to kind of connect the dots as to maybe he was ruffling some feathers uh, along the way, yeah. which is what brought about such a, a horrific death. Absolutely he was, and, and he got the attention both of the king of the day 
as well as the religious elite. He was ruffling a lot of feathers, as was Jesus. Well, he ruffled the one that wanted his head. He really ruffled her feathers. Yeah. And the wife of Herod, yeah. Like it was like she, he rejected her, and she was just... Oh, no, he was calling out Herod. He was saying, you're a sinner. He was calling out the political leader. He was calling out the president, and his wife was upset. Okay. How dare would you shame my family? And it's so, it's so interesting <laughs> that you, you're showing us the parallels between how they both came with such fiery messages and then how they both died such brutal deaths, you know, mm -hmm. because what they were doing were basically pulling the curtains back on a lot of corruption. Yes, that's right. And so it makes sense that they would end up you know, a lot of people would, you know, it, either you're going to repent and turn away or you're going to continue on. And so it would be easier for me to live my life without you here because right. you are trying to shame me and I don't want to deal with this. So you just have to go. Right. Exactly. That is exactly what happens at a certain level. Now, of course, with Jesus, to close on this, with Jesus, there's a different, there's a, an additional level. He's not just a man. He's also God. And so next week, we'll begin to look at how his divinity bleeds through, if you will, in chapter 4, and we'll look at his temptation in the desert. Woo. All right. Right. Give everything. Right. And it's a process. With God, everything is a process. Amen. All right. Let us pray. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word, even when it's a difficult word. We thank you, Lord, for your servant, John, who gave himself completely <laughs> to your mission. Lord, we just ask that right now you would uh, help us to uh, repent, to help us to turn from our ways uh, that would be arrogant or uh, divisive. And Lord, just turn our eyes upon you. Lord, infuse us through your Holy Spirit with your love for all people. Lord, may we be ministers of your peace and your love and uh, in, in the places and spaces where you have called us. We just decree and declare a new walk, a new way, a new life in you, Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, uh, help us to repent again of our sins. Lord, also give us the grace to forgive others, those who've hurt us and offended us. We just release them, Lord. They're your problem. They're your issue. And Lord, help us not to yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For you are our king, the Lamb of God. You are the great I am, the Messiah. And we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Okay, next week we'll be in chapter 4 in the temptation. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Join us next week as we continue in the study of Matthew. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. And may he grant you peace. Have a blessed day.